Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And we're really glad you're with us today as well on the Three Martini Lunch. Jim, you look like you've been at this table since about 8.45 last night, just kind of staring at the <laughs> mirror behind the bar. What's going on? Oh, oh was there a game last night, Greg? <laughs> uh, I just want to point out, I stopped uh, uh, denouncing Jets head coach Adam Gase for a week. They beat Dallas the previous week. like, okay, maybe I misjudged him. Nope, nope, this morning I'm Dennis Green. He is who I thought he was. <laughs> we let him off the hook. And uh, the rich got richer. The Patriots just signed another receiver. So um, good luck, everyone, in the AFC. Uh, we're brought to you today by a new sponsor, Plexiderm. Go to triplexiderm.com. Use the promo code MARTINI for 50% off, plus an additional $10. Again, that's triplexiderm.com. We'll talk about them more in just a moment. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis today, Jim. Let's start with the good. And one of the things we heard a lot during the 2016 campaign from President Trump was, uh, we're going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. And while it's not probably exactly what he envisioned, CNN, of all people, is saying that's kind of what's happened, just not necessarily with a physical wall. CNN says, according to the Mexican defense minister, that 15,000 Mexican troops are deployed to Mexico's northern border. And uh, when asked to uh, respond to claims that Mexico was effectively paying for the wall Trump wanted, Mexico's foreign ministry spokesman told CNN that migration flows have notably decreased in recent months and that efforts continue for a regional development plan. The bottom line is between June and September, uh, the number of migrants presented before Mexican authorities decreased by 70 percent. And, Jim, I think a lot of folks will remember that President Trump demanded the Mexicans do more. He threatened them with tariffs. The Mexicans uh, agreed to do more, and it looks like they are doing more. And so things are quieter on the southern border. Uh, might not be how it was originally drawn up, but what's happening right now seems to be working. Yeah, um, there's an old Stephen Covey uh, theory. Begin with the end in mind, right? Think about what your objective is. The wall was meant to be a tool to reduce illegal immigration if you could actually get sufficient enforcement at Mexico's southern border, you probably could make significant dent in the problem of illegal immigration uh, up here in the United States. And I was thinking about this when your uh, National Review has this program called NR Plus. We have a Facebook uh, account that's members only. And the other day I posted something the other day because I had this observation. You realize you don't hear about I, I, I complain about the president and he gives me plenty of reasons to. But I noticed the way that he's covered. Greg, when do we hear about how much wall has been built? When the president talks about it, he says, oh, we've built so much. Oh, we're almost done with it. You know, yeah, the president's often wrong. But that's the only other time when the government, when, you know, major institutions check in on wall construction. Now, it'd be kind of nice if we did that, I don't know, once a month, twice a month. You know, the idea that the only thing that gets the media interested in certain topics is when the president says something about it. You mentioned earlier that the president had been kind of, you know, uh, verbally rattling the saber, complaining about Mexico not doing what it was supposed to, bringing this up in negotiations with the Mexican government. Now the Mexican government is doing it. It looks like we're starting to see some results. So, one, this is good news. And two, it's kind of an indication that, like, look, this is something that probably could have been and should have been done a long time ago. Um, That all it took was a little bit of saying, hey, Mexican government, get on the stick here. Um, start addressing this, and maybe we'll, sh- we'll be able to play ball on some other issues. And lo and behold, it looks like we're getting some results. And uh, another 12,000 Mexican troops on their southern border, 21 more checkpoints down there. So uh, Mexico, 
at least at the moment, appears to be holding up its end of the bargain. And that's uh, great news for our Border Patrol and uh, many other things as it relates to the southern border. So, Jim, uh, good to see things clearing up when it comes to uh, immigration on the southern border, at least for the moment. Uh, Let's talk about clearing up some other things like wrinkles. Yeah, we're getting older. It's true. But uh, picture your face in the mirror or go look in the mirror unless you're driving. Uh, and you're not at a red light. So do you see any wrinkles around the eyes or any crow's feet or maybe some large bags under the eyes? Okay, that's the bad news. But now imagine they're gone. Not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. And it can happen through Plexiderm, which is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, your crow's feet, and the under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Just wait until you see the results. You want to look 10 years younger, you will look rejuvenated, and simply put, you will be blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so no one will know you're using it. Go to triplexiderm.com and use our code MARTINI for 50% off. 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code MARTINI. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code MARTINI at checkout or again 1-800-685-1292. Triplexiderm.com. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And for that, we have to go north of the border where Justin Trudeau is going to be back as the Canadian prime minister. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Was that good? Anyway, he's it's, uh, it's not bad. It's, it's uh, you know, nothing to cry about. <laughs> AP tells us that uh, Trudeau did, in fact, win a second term. Uh, not as dominant as it was four years ago. The Liberal Party that Trudeau heads did not win a majority of the seats. 157 uh, they won. That's short of the 170 they need for a majority in the House of Commons there. Conservatives with 121 seats. Uh, Still, the Liberals, even with that plurality, didn't win as many votes nationally as the Conservatives did because the Conservatives dominated out West. So the Conservatives won more votes, but the Liberals got more seats. Jim, I keep hearing that the popular vote is the way we really need to do all this, so I'm just so confused today. But the bad news is we got four more years, probably, of Justin Trudeau. Yeah, there's there's an asterisk to this bad martini. It may not be quite as bad as we thought, um, but it's I think it's deeply frustrating for for those of us on the right. Um, besides the fact that the prospect of dealing with Justin Trudeau for a few more years, look, I think all, every listener has heard us making our jokes about uh, Justin Trudeau and his multiple occasions of blackface, brownface, tanface, however you want to characterize it. In the last couple of weeks, it feels like we've seen more pictures of young Justin Trudeau in blackface than with actual whiteface. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's good for pointing out the hypocrisy of a whole bunch of folks on the left. Um, that if many of a conservative candidate uh, or conservative politician had been caught in this circumstance, people would be screaming bloody murder and how racist it is. But if it happens under uh, a liberal, oh, it was youthful indiscretions and, you know, there'd be great meme going around about Ralph Northam calling him up to assure him this will have no consequence on your career whatsoever. Well, so far, Trudeau won. He won by a smaller margin than the last time. Um, it's also worth noting it's not just the blackface scandal, which I think is bad and embarrassing enough. 
Um, it's also like there, earlier this year, there was a, a ethics review that concluded that Trudeau had pressured a state prosecutor to take it easy on a business that was a big employer in Quebec, that he was basically, you know, pressuring a prosecutor not to uh, go after a, a, a business that was an ally to him. That's perhaps a bigger deal. That's that's conflict of interest. That's that's getting into that quid pro quo stuff we're hearing about it over here in Washington. And it seems like between those two, Trudeau should have suffered a bit more political consequences. And so far he has it. The fact that the Canadian Conservative Party couldn't get any traction because, or didn't get as much traction because of these things is kind of frustrating. Um, as we mentioned earlier, it's a smaller margin, it's a smaller majority than they had before. Uh, they're going to form a coalition government, and they think they probably won't hold out for the next four years. So maybe Trudeau will end up uh, facing the voters again before the before he expects it. Uh, that's one of the things that happens in the parliamentary system. And you are correct, Greg. I thought only in America do we have this crazy, wacky situation in which you could win fewer votes but somehow end up winning the election. I don't hear the lefties crying about this now. We hear it once in a while. Uh, well, last time the, the Democrats actually won the majority in the House. But there were times when the, the Republicans held on to the majority in recent cycles where the Democrats would uh, get more votes for their candidates total across the country because they run up the numbers in the in the inner cities and so forth and, and have some lopsided wins there. And uh, we'd, we'd hear them crying about it then. But uh, when it happens up in Canada, it's, it's just the system, man. you got to understand the system. Yeah, I was gonna say, look, it, it's terrible shame that no one tells Democrats, <laughs> you're likely to win California. You're, you're probably going to be fine there. You probably don't have to put that many resources in that state. Whereas in Ohio, a Michigan, a Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, Florida, those are going to be some really important states. And if only someone had told them uh, before the presidential election, they might have done a little bit better. It's a shame that the competitive states are, um, st- you know, state secrets and, and no one's allowed to know them. And the list of states that matter are kept in that warehouse next to the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and there's no science to let people know which states have the, the most competitive races. It's it's just a if shame. Only people would go out and ask people who they're likely to vote for. <laughs> wow. Well, we talked about the uh, the reckless accusations of uh, of Clinton and, and Trump yesterday. Uh, there's certain parts of the Constitution they don't like either. With Hillary Clinton, it's that, and Trump's not a big fan of the Emoluments Clause. So, uh, good times, everybody. Good times. All right, let's talk about the. Uh, 2020 presidential race now. And uh, as much as Tulsi Gabbard is trying to goad Hillary Clinton into running, we're pretty sure that's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of Democrats who don't wish that there would be at least one more Democrat, preferably a prominent one, who would get into this thing. Because as we know, Jim, 26 options just simply wasn't enough for Democratic voters this year. So as we get closer and closer to the actual votes in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, which uh, Iowa's in early February, uh, Democrats starting to wring their hands here. New York Times has this story today about a half dozen Democratic donors, half dozen, meaning six people. So this becomes a big story. The dinner discussion is about all these people they wish could get in, maybe Hillary, maybe Bloomberg, hey, maybe even Michelle Obama. And the bottom line is, is that the people that are actually competitive in the race for the nomination, they don't really think have that great of a chance to win the general election. Uh, Biden uh, can't raise any money. He's been in the race for months and only has $9 million cash on hand. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's doing better in the money department, but they don't think she's a winner in the general election. 
And they uh, also kicked around Pete Buttigieg as a possible person to get behind. But in the end, uh, he is polling at, let's just say, a round number when it comes to most black voters in a lot of the key states. So uh, a very round number. <laughs> yes. Um, so they think they've got some problems no matter who the nominee is here. Now, the article goes on to say that this is uh, pretty common among Democrats. Happened in 92, and they ended up winning that one. Happened in 04 because they were thinking about trying to pressure Al Gore to, to, to give it another shot. So uh, is this just uh, typical hand-wringing? Or the Democrats have a good reason to think that despite all these people, none of them are a very good option. Yeah, I've rarely seen is it. Jonathan Martin, I think, is one of the uh, New York Times correspondents who wrote that. Uh, and, he, and he quotes a bunch of people on the record, um, uh, uh, Bro and the uh, uh, former columnist who's the uh, wife of Sherrod Brown, folks who are fairly significant movers and shakers in Democratic Party circles. And they're all a sense of like, yeah, we are hearing these conversations. People are asking these kinds of questions. I've rarely seen a correspondent jump out and say, look, this is normal. <laughs> I, I told you this was news, but it's not that big a deal. Stop, you know, a little bit. The subtext of get off my case seems pretty, uh, uh, pretty clear there. But I think it's kind of fascinating is this one. I, I, you can see where these Democrats are coming from. I mean, if, if I think if Michelle Obama were to jump into this race, it would be over. Um, there's st- still an enormous amount of goodwill towards her. Um, I think she's, you know, I mean, some of this comes from being a relatively not political figure or less political, less partisan figure as first lady than compared to um, other folks. You don't have a long record of voting for legislation that irks people, et cetera. Um, but again, I, I, the, the people who are yearning for Bloomberg doesn't uh, make a heck of a lot of sense to me. But then, you know, I mean, you got Tom Steyer. I mean, just how many short billionaires who are liberal do you want? Um, but uh, I guess the gist is, you know, look, the, the, at least the plausibility there is you can make the argument, okay, well, if, you know, Mike Bloomberg would be starting from zero and doesn't have an organization, but he could go out and buy one. Um, you know, it's a, I'm, I'm sure Mike Bloomberg looks at put, organizing a Democratic campaign the way most teams look at the free agency period in the NFL. You just go out and sign anybody you want, and they're going to forget their contracts and their commitments to anybody else they've ever um, the Hillary Clinton thing is kind of wild and bewildering. I can't imagine there's that many Democrats who are yearning for a Trump versus Hillary rematch in 2020. But I think, look, you can, you, it's not that hard to think through a scenario in which any of the top Democrats end up botching this. Um, Joe Biden, we've seen, he definitely has lost a step. He's not uh, as verbally acute as he uh, ever was, if he was ever that good and that sharp in the first place. You know, and Trump is going to bring it as you mentioned, the fundraising issues, that's a little bit ominous, particularly for a guy who is a former vice president, you'd think would have access to a really big and broad network of big donors. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I think of anybody in this uh, field right now, she seems like the one who probably reminds people the most of Hillary. Yes, there are some ideological differences, but in the end, um, this is an older woman who will be, uh, you know, th- that lecturing tone, the professorial tone that some people will find uh, irksome. Uh, I still feel like she hasn't really had the whole Native American thing litigated because Democrats don't want to go after her on this. But Donald Trump will not hesitate in the slightest and basically paint her as a giant phony uh, who lied about who she was in order to get ahead. I think that will resonate. uh, That that will not help things. Um, Bernie Sanders, you know, he's a 78 year old man. who will be 79 next year who just had a heart attack. Uh, People will be wondering, is this guy really going to be able to handle the pressures of the presidency? Budet Edge, um, you know, young talent, uh, but he's a South mayor of South Bend. And as you mentioned, so far, he's really a boutique candidate. 
uh, a very you know appealing into the great deal to a particular niche, but not necessarily to anybody else. So you you know it's what a lot of Democrats saying, oh, we got 2020 in the bag. Ah, oh, Trump is so weak. Trump said the head numbers are so bad, and they are. There's there's no two ways about that. But at some point, this race will turn into a contrast, and people you know, 2020 is going to come down to who are the voters angrier at come election day in 2020. And I, it's not hard to imagine a scenario where the voters are less pleased by the prospect of Bernie or Warren or, you know, the rising tide of political correctness, the idea of, of the, you know, left marching on, the business community has already made clear they're not going to back Warren in the slightest. They got reason to be worried about this. And I don't think anybody is going to jump in. But uh, no, I don't think this is, you know, typical uh, chicken little, the sky is falling. I think these donors, you know, look, they've been donating for a long time. They may not be perfect litmus tests of the, of the you know, mood of the electorate. But if you see weaknesses in your party's nominee, you probably shouldn't be whistling past the graveyard. Jim, it's abundantly obvious that Hillary Clinton is not handling the fact that she is not and will not be president well, especially in the last few months. What would it do to her? And I don't even wish this for a number of reasons. First of all, I wouldn't ever want Michelle Obama to be president. But if Michelle Obama, as a former first lady, waltzed in there at the last second, got in there, won the nomination, and ended up becoming president after Hillary planned this for 20 years, and it never happened for her. You know, there was a time where I always thought that Bill Clinton did not want to see anybody else succeed uh, as, as a Democratic nominee. That He was not heartbroken when John Kerry lost in 2004. Uh, he had been the only two-term Democratic president since, uh, since FDR. Uh, he came along at a time, he was always going to be beloved because he came along and won in 1992 when Democrats were afraid Republicans had a lock on the White House. <laughs> Remember those days? They were such good fun days. So, so much fun they brought out that Mickey Mouse laugh out of me. Um, but you know, that this, that Bill Clinton really liked that stat. It's always kind of fun to be unique and to say you've done something that nobody else uh, could do. And so there's a part of me that thinks if Hillary Clinton... There is a part like, you know, why does she not like Tulsi Gabbard for a whole bunch of reasons? But, you know, but one of them probably is Hillary. If the, when a woman candidate wins the presidency, it's going to mean that they succeeded where Hillary Clinton could not. And that's, of course, that's going to sting in her. But uh, look, you know, you, you lose in the circumstances of 2016. You're, you're just destined to spend the rest of your life asking woulda, coulda, shoulda. Unless, Greg, she decides to run again. <laughs> The door is Can't open, you, Mrs. Clinton. Since the, I know you're a big listener, the, the door is open. Tulsi's holding it wide open for you. So the gauntlet's been thrown down. Exactly. Just take that, Hillary. Could you imagine? Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jim, I know it's been a rough 24 hours for you. Great job as always. And uh, next week is another week for the Jets. And tomorrow's a new day for the three martini lunch. So I'll see you then. It is, Greg. But let's keep in mind, I, I stopped watching at halftime after the Star Wars preview. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. That's the only thing that was keeping me going. <laughs> Very good. Jim is with National Review, of course. I'm Greg Karamas of Radio America. We're really glad you're with us today on the Three Martini Lunch. And hey, don't forget about Plexiderm. Go to tryplexiderm.com. Use the promo code MARTINI for 50% and another $10 off. Tryplexiderm.com. And join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.